Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord. You have enabled us to come. You have asked us to come. It is your delight when we come because we come clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We come with robes that are blood-bought at Calvary. We come in Christ. And we come as your children, Lord God, and we make our request known to you. Lord, you said, first of all, let prayer be made for those in authority. And so this week, Lord God, we pray for our Congress in Washington, D.C. Father, we pray uh, for Mike Johnson, uh, who has now been named the Speaker of the House. And we pray, Father God, that this man who names the name of Jesus and has been placed in this great office, Father, will lead with integrity, will lead prayerfully. And Father God, that he would gather all of those elements within our Congress, Father God, to make righteous decisions. And Father, we pray for our senators. We pray for those who are decision makers, Lord God, that in your in your presence, Father, they would make righteous and holy decisions, Father. Lord, we also pray for our MTW missionaries who are serving all around this world, Father. We especially remember this morning Aaron and Rachel Halbert, Lord God, who are ministering in Tegucigalpa down in Honduras. We pray for them. We pray for their five children. We pray, Lord God, that your strength uh, might be theirs. Lord God, that they would be free to preach the word and to teach the word, Father God. And we thank you, Father, for the opportunity to support this missionary couple in their endeavors there in Honduras. And not only Honduras, Lord God, but we uh, pray for our missionaries around the world, especially those who are serving in very difficult places Places like the Ukraine, which is war-torn, Lord God. Places like the Middle East, where there does not seem to be any solution or any peace there. But Father, we lift up, Lord God, to you. We lift up the nation of Israel. We pray, Father God, before our armed services, for our men and women in the Army, in the Navy, in the Air Force, in the Marine Corps, Lord, in the Coast Guard, and in the Space Force. And we pray, Father, that you would uh, give our leaders, especially those in the Pentagon, great wisdom and restraint, Father, in these terrible days of conflict in the Middle East, in this place of the world that was the cradle of Christianity. Father, we pray that even amidst this conflict, and this great conflagration, Lord God, that we would see your gospel proclaimed, that the name of Jesus would be named in all of the uh, nations of the Middle East, Lord God, and that every false religion would be bowed low and would fall, Lord, as Dagon fell before the Ark of the Covenant. We pray these things in Jesus' holy name. Lord, we pray especially now for our congregation. Lord, I thank you for the report of our deacons and the financial stability of this church and how you have blessed us, Lord. 
Father, we do pray that our land would sell, that we would be able to purchase, Father God, a place and a, and a, and a, and a building for us to rightly worship you, Lord God. That's our, our prayer. We pray for our congregation. We pray for those who are sick among us. We remember Virgil, Lord God, as he continues uh, to worship you and to, to praise your name, Father, even as he prepares to go and to meet with you, Lord. Father, we pray that you would give him the desire of his heart, that he might depart this earth and go and be with you where he desperately wants to be. We pray for Debbie Steingruby, Lord God, as she faces a, a, a course of radiation. Lord, that you would be her strength, that you would be her joy. Father, that all remnants and all remaining parts of, of this tumor would be destroyed and that Father Debbie would be restored to perfect health. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. We pray for Marissa as she recovers at home after giving birth to the youngest Edward child. We pray, Father, uh, that she would be well rested. Father, that she would be, have this wonderful time with her newborn son. And we thank you for the Etbergs. We thank you for the gift that they are to this congregation. And we thank you, Lord God, for your son, Jesus Christ. It's all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't know if it's Providence uh, that I'm up here before you and for I see some new faces and uh, I assure you I am not the pastor of Providence Presbyterian Church, so uh, please don't judge the service uh, on anything you hear today. Uh, come back next week, but uh, it is the providence of God that I'm here before you and it's a pleasure always uh, to stand in this pulpit. Uh, and to deliver the Word of God. Today I want to spend some time speaking on a subject of great importance to the church today and has been from the first century a well-debated topic. Theologians call it the study of Christology, which defined as the branch of Christian theology rate, rate, uh, relating to the person and the nature and the role of Jesus Christ. When I joined Providence Presbyterian Church, my wife and I some 10 or 11 years ago, uh, at that point in time, uh, you had to appear before the session uh, and give a credible witness uh, to your faith before you were allowed to then on the following Sunday or some other Sunday uh, be able to uh, make covenant vows before the church and uh, it was a little nerve-wracking to sit in front of the session. And one of the first questions that was asked of my wife and I was uh, from one of the elders of the church, and he said, who is Jesus Christ? And I turned to Lynn and I said, we're in trouble. They don't even know who Jesus is in this church. It's perhaps the most important question that we can answer. Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, in 19 or 1863, on September 20th, preached a sermon called The Warrant of Faith. And in that sermon, he makes the following statement. If Christ was not God, 
we are not Christian. He further stated that faith which saves the soul is believing on a person, depending upon Jesus for eternal life. We must believe him to be God's son. We must grasp with strong confidence the great fact that he is God. For nothing short of the divine savior can deliver us from the infinite wrath of God. He who rejects the true and proper Godhead of Jesus of Nazareth is not saved. So I would like to, as my scripture text this morning, uh, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1. And if you'll take your copy of the Bible and please stand with me, we'll be reading in Colossians chapter 1. I'll be reading from verse 13 to verse 20. The apostle writes, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All these things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. While the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stay forever. You may be seated. This letter of Paul to the Colossians was one of what we call Paul's prison epistles. It was written from a prison cell in Rome. And the commentators believe that it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 61 or 63 AD between that period of time that this letter was written to the church at Colossae. It was not a church that was established by Paul. Matter of fact, he credits Epaphras, his beloved fellow servant, in verse number seven. This letter was a letter of encouragement. And not only for the church of Colossae, but it was also to be read and shared with the church of Laodicea. And the, the letter that was written by Paul to the uh, uh, saints at Laodicea was then to be read uh, here at Colossae. You can see that in chapter four. This wasn't a big church by any means, but nonetheless, it was important to the Apostle Paul. They had begun to experience what some of the churches started to experience, and that was the creeping in of various heresies regarding the nature of Christ. These were early churches. The word of God was just being expounded to them. They were receiving it in in bits of parchment. They couldn't go to their 
their uh, uh, libraries and pull down the Westminster Confession of Faith and read about who this Jesus was. And so heresies began to spring up in the church. This heresy is addressed in chapter 2. Just turn over there with me for a second and look with me briefly from verse number 16 in chapter 2. Paul writes, let no one pass judgment on you with questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moons or Sabbaths. These are the shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. You see, they were, they were teaching that angels were intermediaries between God and man. And they had, be, and they had begun to to pray to these angels, going on in detail about visions and puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. In verse number 20, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is why in the Thanksgiving in chapter 1 of, of this book, Paul writes back in verse number 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. These issues that Paul addresses in chapter 2 that we just read are serious, and these were common problems in the early church. These heresies began early to creep into the church. The earliest of these heresies was found in the practice of a group of people called the Ibionites. These were a bunch of Jewish Christians who embraced what they called an adoptionist Christology. They had an understanding that Jesus of Nazareth was a mere man who by virtue of his righteousness and following the law of Moses was chosen by God to be the messianic prophet, a prophet like Moses. They pointed to his baptism at the Jordan as the point in time that this mere man became Messiah. It was a heresy. They rejected the divinity of Jesus because they based their philosophy on Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so these Jews said there can only be one God. And there was a misunderstanding of how people looked at Christ. He wasn't another God. He was the God incarnate. 
They claimed him to be a great man, a very pious man who followed the law perfectly and this qualified him to become Messiah. It wasn't full-blown Arianism, an influential heresy denying the divinity of Christ originating with an Alexandrian priest named Arius in the uh, third century. Arianism maintained that the Son of God was created by the Father and was therefore neither co-eternal with the Father nor co-substantial, meaning of the same substance. And that heresy had to be dealt with by the church. And, and, and throughout the centuries we have battled with and we have struggled with this great question, who is Jesus Christ? But nonetheless, the Colossian church began under the influence of some of these Judaizers and some of these Greek philosophers to begin to stray from the truth of the gospel as brought to them by Epaphras. Serious enough that we read in chapter 4 that Paul was also going to be sending Tychicus and Onesimus to that church for further instructions. But the main concern of Paul is addressed right up front in chapter 1. They began to have a different opinion of who Jesus was. Not unlike the opinion of some who profess to be Christians in our own age. This mixture of Greek philosophy and Judaism and to some extent oriental religion which had seeped in practices promoted the worshiping of all manner of strange gods and was now mixed with the gospel of Christ. These heathens were being saved and they incorporated in their worship what they believed from when they weren't saved. This matter of the identity of Christ was of great importance to Jesus. We have the account in all of the synoptic gospels of a, uh, an incident that happens in Caesarea Philippi Listen to Matthew chapter 16. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Notice that he doesn't say, who do you say that I am? He's going to ask that question. But this is how Jesus phrases the question. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And in that question is the answer. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. It was his most favorite designation of himself. And, and he's, they're, they're, they're walking in Gentile territory. They had left Judea. They were up near Caesarea Philippi. And Jesus isn't curious about what others think of him. Jesus is trying to get to a point where his disciples know exactly who he is. So he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, had they been going to Larry Rogers' Sunday school class in the book of Daniel, they would have said, aha, Jesus is referring here to chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. Where Daniel in chapter 7 writes this, I saw in the night vision and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like the son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and he was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom 
that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away in his kingdom, that shall, and, and of his kingdom it shall not be destroyed. And they said various things to Jesus as they're walking along. They said, well, some think you're John the Baptist, and others think you're Elijah, and others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who's in heaven. So Paul addresses this right up front with the Colossians using some of the most direct language that we read in scripture. First, he makes a statement of our deliverance from the domain of darkness. In other words, from the slave market of sin, we are translated by God into Christ. Look at verse number 13. It doesn't say we escaped or we delivered ourselves, but he, God the Father, by the Holy Spirit, delivered us from one kingdom and placed us into another. Verse 14 says, in whom, in whom, or in Christ, which is a, a very familiar theme with Paul, we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Then he states an important theological fact. Verse number 15 says, he is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation, for by or in him all things were created in heaven. And on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things. You see, he's attacking this belief about angels. He's saying he's the one that created these. All things were created through him and for him. And he's above all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all of the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace, peace through the blood of his cross. This is the question that has to be answered from all of us over and over again. Who do you say that I am? You see, it wasn't just a question that the Colossian church dealt with. It's a question that we deal with even in, our set, in this century, the 21st century. I've heard it time and time again from people who don't know Christ, who you engage in conversation, or even sadly from some Christians. And they'll say, well, I think Jesus is, well, just stop right there. Because I don't care what you think Jesus is. I only care what the Bible says that Jesus is. And Paul makes it abundantly clear here in verse number 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Remember in John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking with Philip and it starts out in verse number six with a great I am statement. Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me. And in verse number seven, he says this, if you had known me, 
you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. And then Philip says to him, Lord, show us the father, and it's enough for us. And Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Now, now the Greek word for image here is the word icon, and it means the exact likeness. The exact likeness. He is the icon of the invisible God. Paul doesn't say here that Jesus resembles the Father, but that he is the image of the invisible God. The other meaning of the word icon is manifestation with the sense that God is fully revealed in Jesus. In the next chapter, Paul's going to write in verse number 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. If Paul intended to show that Jesus was merely similar to the Father, he would not have used the Greek word homeoma which speaks merely of similar in appearance, but he uses a much stronger word. He uses the word icon that proves that Jesus is God just as God the Father is God. Listen to the, what the writer of the book of Hebrews says of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 3. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The King James Version interprets it who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. And people try to take those verses and say, well, it's like this when they try to talk about the Trinity. It's like, well, the Son represents God the Father and the, and the beams of light that come from the Son, that, that's really Jesus and the warmth that we feel is the Holy Spirit. They get all, they get all fouled up. The Son is the Father, the Son is the Son, and the Son is the Holy, and the Son, the, the brightness of that is the Holy Spirit. These are, this is one God in three persons. Paul goes on to say to the Colossian, he's the firstborn of all creation. We mustn't infer to this, infer from this that Christ had a beginning. That would put us in the camp of the heretics who said that Jesus was created by God who is neither co-eternal with the Father or co-substantial. This is the view of the Mormon church. These first few centuries of the church struggled with the concept of the Logos that John speaks about in his gospel prologue in chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. This heresy was addressed by the Council of Nicaea in 325 and then adopted by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. And in it, he addresses the person of Christ. In it, we confess Jesus to be God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnated by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man. He is the great God-man. So the word firstborn used here in verse number 15 can mean either priority in time or supremacy in rank. 
Paul probably has both of these definitions in mind. Arthur Peake, a theologian of the late 19th century, writes of this word, God is invisible, which does not merely mean that he cannot be seen by our bodily eyes, but that he is unknowable in the extent, in the exalted Christ, rather, the unknowable God becomes known. That's why Jesus said, have I been with you so long and you don't know me, Philip? The idea of supremacy and rank and priority in time is also stated in verse number 17, where Paul writes, he is before all things. And again, in verse 18, he is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. Paul then goes on to address creation. In verse 16, for by or in him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Paul states categorically here that in Christ all things were created in heaven and on earth. The very angels that the Colossians were comparing Jesus to, they had a beginning and they were, they were trying to venerate. They were indeed created by this God-man. All of creation was made by him and through him and to him. He is the beginning the, and the end of all things. All things will finally find their end in Christ. This is a constant theme of the Apostle Paul. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom, all, for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Here the Apostle Paul is saying the exact same things about God the Father as he says about God the Son. Back to our text. Not only is he before all things, but verse 17 tells us he, he and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Everything that theoretical physicists have discovered, the subatomic particles and the electrons and the neutrons and the quarks and all the string theory can be summed up in the phrase, in him all things hold together. The Westminster divines captured the essence of this passage in Colossians when they wrote in chapter 8, section 2 on Christ the Mediator. They said, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, being very and eternal God of one substance and equal with the Father, did when the fullness of time was come take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the power of the Holy Ghost in the womb of the Virgin Mary, of her substance, so that two whole perfect and distinct natures, the Godhead and the manhood, were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. Now Paul shifts from a deeply theological discussion on the personhood of Christ 
to a presentation of the gospel. Look at verse number 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn. There's that word again, prototokos. We get our word prototype from it. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. This is why the book of Revelation, Christ says to John, I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He's saying to John, everything exists in me and for me and by me and to me. Make no mistake, the head of the church is Christ and no other. He is the firstborn from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 23, Paul writes, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, speaking of Adam, by a man Jesus has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each to his own order, Christ the first fruits, and then it is coming those who belong to Christ. This idea of being firstborn or first fruits was that in everything he might be shown to be preeminent. And as it was put to cherry on the Sunday, he says in verse number 19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Matthew Henry, in commenting on these passages, says, all fullness dwells in him. And it pleased the Father. It pleased the Father that it should do so, not only a fullness of abundance for himself, but redundance for us. A fullness of merit and righteousness, of strength and grace. As the head is the seat of the source of the animal spirits, so Christ is of all graces to his people. And now for Paul, who is committed to preach Jesus Christ and him crucify, he ends by saying in verse number 20, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Paul always gets to the cross, the cross, the cross. Paul now moves to application and with that we'll close. Remember distinctly several Sundays when Jim Claycomb was our pastor, he would talk about the indicatives and the imperatives. It was almost like it was a broken record, you know. And, and I had to look it up so much for my bachelor's degree from Temple University. What did he mean by indicatives and imperatives? But the Bible always talks in, in that direction. The Apostle Paul always taught in that direction. You see, if you have too much theology, your head will explode. And if you don't have enough theology, and all you're doing is works, you fall into a very dangerous pit. We are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves, it's a gift of God, least any man should boast. And in verse number 21, he says, and you, Church of Colossae, you members of Providence Presbyterian Church, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death.
in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. God has reconciled us to himself by the blood of the cross. You had nothing, nothing to do with your salvation. The Bible tells us again in Ephesians 2, 8, you were saved by grace through faith. Your reconciliation was so that you can be presented blameless and above reproach to a holy God. We need to continue in faith, stable, steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. Verse 23 starts out, if indeed you continue in the faith. So Paul commends us here to be stable, but to be steadfast, to not shift from a hope of the gospel. Here, here Paul moves from the indicative, those weighty statements that he makes about Jesus Christ, to the imperative, from the theological construct of Christology to the application and the command of the gospel. Now we as Presbyterians know that the doctrines of grace include the perseverance of the saints, a grace freely given by God to keep us from falling away. But we need to heed the words of the Apostle Peter where he writes in 2 Peter chapter 1, therefore brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and your election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. For in this way, there will be, be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Who do you say that I am? Again, this is the most important question we can ponder. Make sure you know who Christ is. Make sure you know what the gospel preaches. Leave out one element of the gospel and you don't have Christianity. Who is Christ? Who is Jesus? The apostle Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter knew. Peter was assured. We need to be assured also. We need to make sure that we don't just have a, a head knowledge, but that it has dropped that 13 inches from the head to the heart. We need to be assured of the fact that Jesus Christ left his home in glory where he was daily the Father's delight, and took upon himself the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. He was the great God-man. He was the perfect second Adam. And at the end of his life, he laid down his life. He paid a price that we could not pay. He went all the way for us. And he died on the cross. And this, this, is our, this is our hope. Because he was raised again for our justification. He ascended into heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father. And from there he'll come to judge the living and the dead. And one day soon, 
he will return for his bride. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. And Lord God, we, we, we confess to you, Father, that sometimes we are so lackadaisical. Sometimes we just take for granted the fact that we're saved. We're not steadfast. But Father, you can make us steadfast as we dedicate ourselves to Christ, as we dedicate ourselves to prayer and to the reading of Scripture. Father, forgive us for taking so lightly the salvation that you have given to us. And we ask, Lord God, uh, that you would come now in these communion elements, that we would feed upon you today. Lord, we thank you for this. In Christ's name we pray.